0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened and this is the podcast where Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. It's not intended to be extremely descriptive, it's just meant to give you a crash course on everything that took place. That's why I wanted to create this podcast is so that you could have a resource to refer to, not necessarily to listen to uh, two and a half hours of podcast or watch a long historical movie to get an understanding of a concept But you could listen to a 20 to 30 minute podcast and get the gist of everything you needed to know about it. There's always more things to be learned about everything that I cover, but at the end of each episode, I can only hope that you have an understanding of the events or uh, situations that have taken place in the past. And honestly, this episode is probably the most exciting episode I've gone over so far because... (laughs) I guess I relate the most to this episode. I relate the most to what I'm going to be covering today. So, uh, let's get started, because this is going to be fun. Today, we're talking about the company called Nintendo. Now, if you say the word Nintendo to pretty much anyone in the developed world, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, from adults who remember using the Nintendo Ultra Hand or the Game & Watch, or playing Donkey Kong and Popeye on arcade machines, to younger adults in their 20s and 30s remembering the long car rides with a Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, playing Pokemon Gold and Silver by the light of passing street lamps, to the teens of today who barely remember a time before the Nintendo Wii existed, where we could suddenly take trips to the bowling alley in our living room, to the freshly released Animal Crossing New Horizons, which I still see several of my college-age friends playing at least once a day. They post about it on social media, and it's one of my favorite things to see on social media. My younger brother and I convinced our parents to get us a GameCube when I was around 8, making him 5-ish, which introduced us to the worlds of Mario Kart Double Dash, 1080 Avalanche, Star Fox Assault, Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, and, of course... Super Smash Brothers, all games developed and or published by Nintendo. Nintendo has become a giant in the video game industry, and not without merit. Nintendo is still known to treat its employees well, release games on time, price games according to their merit, and refrain from expensive downloadable content in addition to the base price of their releases. Nintendo holds a special place in the hearts of all gamers, but something you may not know is that Nintendo has been in the gaming world for much longer than you may realize. Maybe even a century longer. Alright, let's hop in this time travel machine that we tend to revisit through most of these episodes and see what's going on way back when, and we're not going to stop until... (laughs) 1889 in Kyoto, Japan. Fusajiro Yamauchi was a 29-year-old craftsman and entrepreneur living in Kyoto. Yamauchi enjoyed crafting cards made out of white mulberry bark and illustrated with pictures of flowers to sell to people in his city. In Japan, gambling was expressly outlawed. It was only reinstated as something that is legal fairly recently. I don't know an exact date, but it's, it, that's pretty recent. As much as I looked, the source for this outlawing of gambling, uh, the only source that I could find seemed to be an outlawing of playing cards back in 1633. Observing this outlawing of playing cards, Yamauchi saw a way around it. His illustrations weren't technically playing cards, and if people wanted to use his various designs as a way to play games, that was not his doing. He began to sell his cards in decks with certain numbers of each kind of illustration making up something similar to a common deck of playing cards, but again, he insisted that this was purely to keep uniform his production quotas. And the Japanese government bought it. As they were moving from isolationism into a swiftly globalizing society, the tax income from any small businesses was a welcome benefit. After mass-producing the cards in his home for several months, in November of 1889, Fusajiro Yamauchi opened up a shop in Kyoto, Japan, named Nintendo Kopai. No one really knows exactly what the word Nintendo means, but Kopai simply means cards. The most common theory is that Nintendo means luck be to heaven, but it's a collection of Japanese syllables that don't make a lot of sense when used with various inflections from this shop yamauchi hired a group of workers workers to help him mass produce the cards creating modest early successes unfortunately yamauchi was too good at what he did and he enjoyed creating quality product the unfortunate factor of this was that yamauchi was selling to a niche market meaning a very specific group of people and his cards tended to last for a long time on mulberry bark once you bought a deck You didn't need to buy another for a long time, because the cards were also made with a process that created quality over quantity. These cards also became expensive to make, heightening their selling price, making it even less likely for consumers to buy larger quantities of them. This created financial problems in the new Nintendo company, and Yamauchi acted quickly, creating another line of cheaper, more flimsy cards that degraded relatively quickly, but he sold them at a much lower price. Along with the lower price, these flimsier cards changed designs, often incentivizing further purchases for collectors. While the cheaper cards brought in more revenue as a primary benefit, it also created a desire for more hardcore card gamers to get their hands on the original Mulberry Bark cards for long term use. You could say they were the original Xbox One Series X Gears 5 Limited Edition or PlayStation 4 Pro 1TB Death Stranding Limited Edition. If you wanted to demonstrate your prestige as a primitive gamer, you had to own them. But how did Yamauchi's small store blossom into the multi-trillion dollar conglomerate we see today? Now, as much as we love video games, as much as I love video games, we gotta talk about something that's not video games in this episode in order to understand how Nintendo became what it is today. The Kyoto we find ourselves in here is a far cry from the Kyoto that exists today. The Kyoto today boasts a population of 1.5 million people, but in 1889, it housed barely 300,000. If you're familiar with Japanese history, you'll know that the late 1800s was a period of drastic change in Japan in a series of sweeping political and social shifts known as the Meiji Restoration. Before the Meiji Restoration, Japan lived under the Tokugawa shogunate, And before that, while being considered a country, Japan was more of a collection of independent states and tribes that experienced conflict and division based on cultural differences. In 1603, power in Japan was partially consolidated under a central government, but there still existed a distinct class system, and any movement between the four distinct classes, which were samurai, artisan, farmer, and merchant, was expressly prohibited. Along with these measures, the establishment of the Tokugawa shogunate cut off all ties with the outside world, creating an isolated Japan. Though the Japanese economy grew significantly during the the Tokugawa shogunate, and the Tokugawa shogunate oversaw the birth of several urban centers, the country began lagging behind technologically and agriculturally during the 19th century. As the rest of the world created a more global economy, leaders in Japan knew that something had to be done, lest the country fall behind further. The agricultural sector in Japan had begun lacking, and several famines had led to peasant uprisings, which weakened the Tokugawa shogunate before eventually two large anti-Tokugawa clans combined to topple the shogunate and establish a new regime that they called the Imperial Restoration in 1862. So what does this all have to do with Nintendo? The Imperial Restoration was also known as the Meiji Restoration, which I mentioned earlier, named after the first Imperial Emperor who was only 14 when he came to power. Japan was late to the modernization party, but the economic growth fostered by the Tokugawa shogunate set the stage for such modernization and industrialization to take place. This, combined with the abolition of the class system imposed by the Tokugawa shogunate with its restrictive lifestyle requirements, practically set the stage for anyone with an entrepreneurial mindset to try their hand at business. The official Meiji Constitution was written in 1889, the same year Nintendo was founded. Among other rights declared by the Constitution, one unalienable right was the freedom of movement. For Western democracies, this this clause may seem like a strange thing to put into a constitution, but remember, 200 years earlier, the Tokugawa shogunate had consolidated power from dozens of independent provinces governed by just as many independent rulers. Each of these provinces retained its identity through the Tokugawa shogunate, and it was rare that anyone moved to a different province. The Meiji constitution sought to change that, and it seemed that Fusajiro Yamauchi took notice. And soon after his establishment of Nintendo Kopai in Kyoto, he opened a second shop in Osaka, then a much larger city than Kyoto, where his flower card business continued to flourish. Fusajiro Yamauchi had it made. By 1902, Japan had lifted its ban on playing cards, and Nintendo's first Western-style playing cards were released that year. After a brief damper on their profits due to the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905, Nintendo really started hitting it big when it signed a deal with with a Japanese tobacco company called Japan Tobacco that allowed them to market their cards in the cigarette stores that dotted the entire country. By 1929, on the cusp of the global Great Depression, Nintendo Kopai was the largest playing card company in Japan, only 22 years later. That year, Fusajiro Yamauchi, now 70 years old and likely satisfied with his success elected to retire and hand the company off to his son-in-law Sakurio Kaneda i may be pronouncing all of these japanese names wrong i don't speak japanese so please if you are if you speak japanese just look past that <laughs> in 1933 sakurio kaneda established the company as a general partnership and invested in a fancy new headquarters located right next to the original building in Kyoto, as the company began to prosper until the outbreak of World War II. The war hampered the public's interest in recreation, as basically the entire country was mobilized to contribute to the war effort, and Nintendo took a hard hit, but found a way to survive until the war ended. In 1947, Sekiryo Kaneda founded a distribution company that would handle all distribution of Nintendo playing cards, rather than pay someone else to do it. This catapulted Nintendo's profits. In 1950, due to Sekiryo Kaneda's declining health, his grandson, Hiroshi, took presidency over the company and swiftly enacted several important changes. In 1951, he changed the name of the company to Nintendo Playing Card Company Ltd and changed the name of the distribution company to Nintendo Karuta Company, LTD, making the connection between both flourishing companies obvious. In 1952, he centralized all production of cards into factories in Kyoto, creating more office jobs, and released a new line of playing cards, which garnered considerable success in Japan. But Hiroshi wanted a larger presence. His vision for the company went far beyond the shores of Japan, all the way across the Pacific Ocean. So in 1959, he signed a deal with Walt Disney that enabled Nintendo to use the characters in famous Walt Disney shows on their cards. And soon after, Hiroshi established a distribution method that targeted toy and candy stores as central selling points for the cards. With the spread of television, Nintendo used televised ad campaigns to market the cards to audiences across the world. Life seemed pretty good for the employees of Nintendo... But by 1963, dark clouds loomed over the company. The Mickey Mouse cards had geared the company toward a child-centered market, and kids often looked for the next big thing. Their sales began to fall. To add to this, popular Western hobbies such as bowling had hit Japan, and adults were losing interest in the decades-old Hanafuda flower cards. Nintendo had to act fast. Between 1963 and 1968, Nintendo tried its hand at diversification, releasing products that had absolutely no relation to anything Nintendo was attempting to be. They alienated their audiences with releases of packages containing instant rice, the establishment of a taxi service, and the construction of several love hotels. I don't feel the need to explain what those are. Hiroshi abandoned these ventures when they didn't pan out. He knew he'd abandoned his audience and he had to make up for it. What worked initially? Games. And with this, Hiroshi launched a new initiative. Take what was already good and expand on it. People liked to play. They liked Nintendo because Nintendo gave them things to play. So why not give them more things to play? Hiroshi constructed a new plant in Uji City and began releasing new editions of centuries-old games such as chess, shogi, and mahjong. These enjoyed moderate success, and Nintendo was back in business. Hiroshi saw how people loved these games and enlisted the help of several specialists to design and perfect new games. Hiroshi also noticed the public's interest in other electronics. His team began putting these two things together— And this is where Nintendo really hits it big. In the early 1970s, Nintendo released the Nintendo Beam Gun, Japan's first electronic toy. By modern standards, the toy is pretty simple. All it did was emit a pulse of light when you pulled the trigger. But the Japanese public went bonkers for it. The Nintendo Beam Gun sold over 1 million units. That's a lot. In the following years, Nintendo would release the Ultra Hand, a toy similar to a typical grappler, the Ultra Machine, which was used to launch baseballs toward a batter, and the Love Tester, which needed two people to hold the ends of the machine before giving a reading on how compatible the couple was. Each was successful. Nintendo was on top of the world and saw no reason to slow down. While Nintendo tried its hand at video games in the early 1970s, they weren't able to get the processing speed of their games to the levels of companies such as Bandai and Tomy, and their prices were much higher. So as we've seen in the past, they did what Nintendo does best. They innovated. An inventor employed by Nintendo named Gunpei Yokoi noticed that technology used in handheld calculators was sophisticated enough to be used for something greater than punching numbers. So we set to work putting together one of the most pivotal inventions in video game history, the game and watch. The game and watch was the world's first handheld video game console. While it was not the first handheld video game, that title is held by the Maddle Company, it was the first handheld video game console that could play more than one video game. Remember how the Nintendo Beam Gun sold around 1 million units? Well, the Game & Watch sold 43 million in the 1980s, during which time 59 games were made for the Game & Watch. In 1981, Nintendo evolved the game industry further with the introduction of the famous Donkey Kong arcade game, one of the first arcade games that allowed the main character to jump. In this game, we are introduced to Jumpman, who would later become the beloved character named after the landlord of Nintendo's offices in Washington, USA, Mario. After the video game crash of 1983, which was brought about by third-party developers releasing a bunch of crappy games which oversaturated the market, including the infamous E.T., the extraterrestrial video game developed by Atari, Nintendo began looking at new development of fresh, home-centered video game products, and this new mentality gave birth to the well-remembered Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. Along with the NES were eventually born the universally loved Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda franchises. My grandma still has a gold Legend of Zelda cartridge for the NES in her basement. These games were some of the first to include intricate music, reinforcing the idea that music can play an integral part in a video game experience and can be used to complement game mechanics rather than just be background noise. So the numbers get bigger here. The Game and Watch sold 43 million units, right? The NES sold 63 million. By 1989, it is estimated that 25% of homes in the United States owned an NES, and it just kept getting better. In 1989, Nintendo released another landmark, the Game Boy. The Game Boy was the first handheld gaming console that was compatible with multiple interchangeable gaming cartridges, so you weren't stuck with just the games you bought with the console. It set the gaming world on fire. So far, we've looked at the Nintendo Beam Gun selling 1 million units, and the Game & Watch selling 43 million, followed by the NES selling 63 million, and here comes the ballbreaker. The Game Boy sold worldwide, over 118 million units. Less than 20 years after the release of the Beam Gun, a Nintendo product not only doubled the sales, but multiplied them by over 100. Around the same time of the release of the Game Boy, Nintendo also published its own magazine, immediately circulating to 1.5 million readers. Also in the late 1980s, Nintendo responded to Sega's Mega Drive, which utilized 16-bit architecture instead of 8-bit, with the upgrade to the NES, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES. Once again, it was a smash hit. 1996 the Nintendo 64, another huge hit and today still a staple of nostalgia to anyone born in the 90s with Super Mario Net, uh, 64, GoldenEye 007, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time being heralded as some of the best video games of all time. 1998, the Game Boy Color was released, again changing the game for handheld devices. And then my personal favorite came along. In 2001, Nintendo introduced the GameCube, which, though successful, didn't fare as well as its predecessors. Its iconic mini-disc platform is recognizable today. Everyone knows a GameCube game when they see one, but it was a letdown for Nintendo. Regardless, we got the legendary Mario Kart Double Dash, and that's really all that matters if I'm being honest. In 2004, Nintendo proved that it still held the title for most innovative handheld gaming systems by releasing the Nintendo DS, also a staple in gaming history. Nintendo heard that Sony was developing their own handheld gaming device that would prove far superior to any previous Game Boy, the PlayStation Portable, so Nintendo hit them hard preemptively with the release of the Nintendo Dual Screen, or the Nintendo DS. The Nintendo DS not only had a dual screen display that allowed for new game design, But it also contained a lighting mechanism so kids could play the DS in the car at night. Unheard of. They weren't done. In 2006, Nintendo changed the game again with the introduction of the Wii. I remember the first time I saw a commercial for the Wii and it seemed way too far out there for me to comprehend. The Wii did away with corded controllers and couch sitting and made all games of movement-based experience. Want to play Mario Kart? You have to get a steering wheel and actually steer. You could have a baseball game with your friends in your bedroom. You could hang glide in your basement. And to top it all off, all GameCube games were backward compatible with the Wii. Take note, Microsoft and Sony. The world was at your fingertips with the Wii. And to prove its worth, it sold over 100 million units. Almost as much as the Game Boy in all its iterations. Since the release of the Nintendo Wii, Nintendo has been busy innovating its existing creations, establishing such products as the DSi, the 3DS, the Wii U, we don't talk about the Wii U. And then in October of 2016, they unveiled their latest invention. It was a blend of a Game Boy and a console, and an obvious improvement upon the failure of the Wii U. Both controllers could be removed and used individually, or attached to the screen and used as a single console. It was extremely innovative, and the graphics were on par with any of the greatest consoles of the time. And released with it was one of the most legendary games of the decade, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I remember working in a small shop with some of my friends for a year and playing this console in the back office when it was slow. It was called the Nintendo Switch, and it was beautiful. Today, reportedly, Nintendo's net worth is somewhere around $50 billion. That's pretty big. Nintendo is known to be a beacon of quality and a champion for great games suitable and enjoyable for all ages. They somehow manage to appeal to everyone and never pander. Yes, Nintendo is a work of art, and even today, my grandmother has a Super Nintendo hooked up to an old 1970s television that I still take time to play Super Mario Bros. with my sisters on. It still works. And wait, what about those cards that kicked this whole thing off in 1889? In the 1970s, Nintendo was quickly becoming an electronic gaming giant, and its owners knew that they needed the factory space used to make the Hanafuda cards for other purposes, proposing that the cards be discontinued. They didn't sell well, anyway. But Hishiro Yamauchi knew that they could never forget where they came from. Remember how they built a headquarters and factories? next to the original Nintendo Kopai building in Kyoto? Hishiro Yamauchi decided to move all equipment used to make those cards into that original building, where they started the Nintendo story, and today, those flower cards that kicked off one of the most famous technological brands in the world are still made in the same building where they were made over a century ago. If that is not a testament to the heart of Nintendo, I don't know what is. So, that is a crash course in the story of Nintendo. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This was fun to research. I think I'm going to branch out more with these. I've been talking a lot about historical events and capitalizing more on military historical events, but there's so much more history in this world and I want to expand my horizons and what I talk about on this podcast. So, if you have a subject, an event, a company, uh, something you want something you want to learn the history on specifically from this podcast because you like the way that I present information, feel free to email me at tannertalksaboutstuff at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review, and if you are particularly kind, write a review down for me and let me know what you think of the show. It really does help us get more people involved with the conversation about history. So, until next week, this is Tanner talking about stuff, signing off. Have a good week.